This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome, folks. Here we are once again at Core Brain Journal. And get this, this is episode 050. We're really pleased to have Dr. Robert Tudisco with us today. And a lot of you out there in ADHD land know Robert very well because you've heard him at meetings. Thank you so much for coming on board, Rob. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to read a little bit about Rob's background. He's a nationally recognized author, a motivational speaker, and a nonprofit management consultant. I think I need some consultation (laughs) in that regard, Rob. In addition to being a practicing attorney at the law firm of Barger and Gaines in Irvington, New York, he's also an adult diagnosed with ADHD, and he's made a significant impact I've met Rob a number of times at different meetings, and he's just done a great job. His presentations are absolutely outstanding. He's very informed, and he's walking an interesting edge that we'll get into and we'll talk about tonight. So uh, additionally, getting back to the notes here, uh, he's been the executive director of the Edge Foundation, a nonprofit organization that specializes in coaching for students with ADHD and executive function impairment. He's a past member of the National Board of Directors of the uh, Child and Adults with Attention Deficit Disorder, CHAD. Uh, He's serving as a member of its public policy committee since 2003 and as a committee chair from 2005 to 2008. He's been very active with CHAD and he's been very active as a former vice president with the ADDA, Attention Deficit Disorder Association. So I think even more relevant is Rob is talking to the public even more than a lot of us. He's been on the CBS News, New York Times uh, Magazine, Newsweek, ABC News, BBC, NBC's Today Show, CNN. You don't get around much, Rob. (laughs) The USA Today, Seattle Times, he's been around. So With that, thank you so much again for coming on board, Rob. Tell us a little bit about who you are personally, where you are, what you're doing now. Let's get get into that personal moment. Well, what what I can tell you is uh, my diagnosis with ADHD, I was 34 years old. That really was a major turning point in my life. I, um, I, when I left law school, I, I always knew I was different growing up. Uh, and there was always an enormous sense of frustration. I always felt as if there was a lot more going on behind my eyes than I was getting credit for. And uh, when I left um, law school, my first position was in as, as an assistant district attorney. I was prosecuting street crime in the South Bronx. And it is absolutely the perfect place for someone with ADHD. Uh, everything was an emergency. I was running around with the police all the time. Uh, they were all ADHD. Uh, I was trying homicide cases. I was very good on my feet. Uh, I really was a star in the office. The problem was when I left the district attorney's office to start my own practice, 
it was the same wall that I hit when I hit like fourth grade. Um, I had to run an office. I had to keep track of my time, bill my clients. And my success wasn't solely based on how good of an attorney I was. Uh, I had to run a business and those administrative tasks really got in the way, like so many of my clients that I represent as students. And so I sought some help and eventually I uh, met a uh, psychiatrist that changed my life. He diagnosed me. Uh, it made a lot more sense. And I got very involved in the disability community. And as I learned more about myself and more about ADHD and other mental health disorders, I started to see patterns in the clients that I was representing. There was always something, most of the time there was something there, whether it was ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder or substance use disorder. There was overlap between many of these things. And um, I started uh, the second real epiphany was that um, as a criminal defense attorney, it's very frustrating because you get the call too late. Johnny's brought a gun to school or there's some uh, fight in the gym or something like that. Right. You get the call when something's gone horribly wrong. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that if I could work with parents to get support and services when those students were much younger, I might not be getting those calls later on when they've gotten into serious trouble. And so I, I changed the focus of my practice. And in addition to my criminal defense practice, starting working with parents uh, to get support and services for their kids at a younger age, behavioral intervention plans, etc., to kind of minimize uh, some of the downside that I was seeing as a criminal attorney. And as a benefit, I'm one of the few attorneys that handles when students get uh, disciplined at school and arrested for the same activity, I actually will handle both the disciplinary hearing as well as the criminal prosecution. Um, and it really is a hornet's nest for parents uh, that uh, don't know what uh, potentially could happen if their child poses a behavioral problem. So that's your, through your current law firm. Correct. And you, so you do that. That's your job every day. This is that is correct. That's what you're doing. Well, I thought that was very interesting. Now, how did you identify, Rob, those kids uh, and, and identify them as kids in need before you actually got involved with them in a program? What I would see is, based upon my own research and the work I was doing in the disability community, I would see irregularities, red flags go up, um, kids not uh, always representing one client for the same type of activity a number of times, uh, substance use, um, students and ask, starting to ask questions of parents like, is there an IEP? Are they getting special help at school? Uh, seeing patterns develop. And I'm certainly not qualified to diagnose anybody with anything, but looking into some of those behavioral issues um, really was enormous helpful in getting prosecutors to understand the bigger picture, uh, educating judges to see the bigger picture. Now I actually do a number of seminars for judges and attorneys to help them understand the special needs of a lot of defendants coming through the system because people with mental health disorders, uh, a lot 
uh, or at a much higher percentage to get involved in the juvenile and criminal justice system. They often stay in the system much longer than those without by a number of studies, five to eight times longer in the system than those without mental health disorders. And it's a huge problem. Uh, another issue that I've noticed is that a lot of my clients with special needs that also have substance use disorders, it's been enormously frustrating for me. And you and I have discussed this at conferences many times uh, where a parent might get their child kicking and screaming into some type of recovery program and say to the, uh, the staff at the drug program, uh, he's bipolar or he's got ADHD. You need to know that. And it makes me angry when the response is, uh, well, talk about that with his psychiatrist. We deal with the addiction. And the frustrating thing is as, as many advances as we've made, drug treatment and assessment is uh, looked at very separately from mental health treatment and assessment in the court system. And unless you treat both simultaneously, you're not going to uh, address the problem completely. And systemically, something needs to change there. And that's been my big issue. You know, Rob, I, we said this privately before, and you reminded me of a conversation that we had because I'm as passionate about that as you are. A long-distance high-five for bringing it back up, you know, because I think, and if there's any way I could pitch in and help you, I would be happy to do so because that is being board-certified in addiction medicine for 10 years. I let it lapse because I didn't want to go to the meetings anymore because one of the things that happens in addiction medicine is they're so reductionistically disinclined to talk to psychiatrists. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a... Uh, uh, one of those uh, uh, loathing things when you're in a club that they decide that you're not you're not there, and, and why hang out? It's not fun, right? You know. But interestingly, if you're over with psychiatrists, unless you're with a certain group of psychiatrists, it's the same thing over there. I mean, it's it's a it's a groupthink process, and uh, and what happens is we need to do everything we can as coalescent professionals to bring these folks together because. The human being is the person that's caught in the middle. It's really simple. That is correct. And, and I think that part of the misnomer that people have from the outside is that while I am looking for a better outcome for my client, uh, a positive outcome in a situation like this really benefits the community. If you're reducing recidivism, you're reducing uh, potential quality of life issues or problems that the community as a whole is facing uh, because you're treating addiction, you are treating the, the mental illness uh, and uh, both of them and how they interact, uh, you'll see positive of it outcomes for everyone so uh it's it's really important you know you said that so well and i'm looking quickly and i'll find it in just a minute but um how do you i'm going to find the name because there's a person that we've interviewed that you would love to you may know her already but we've interviewed her she's out in santa barbara california and she's on the same mission and she has a whole program that you two should be together we uh, and and you will love the, the, and before this one's over i'll get it so you and our listeners can hook up with her but she's got a program that does it internally in the schools in santa barbara and other places nationally so she identifies them and gets them into an actual program do you have a program or what do you do with that 
Um, well, there are a number of programs through the court system that I will refer clients to. Uh, the bigger issue that I've been having is, and the reason I've been doing these seminars, is because the uh, attorneys, uh, the criminal defense attorneys, typically do not have a good bead on mental health issues, and the disability attorneys really don't have a whole lot of um, interest or background knowledge in areas involving uh, criminal procedure. And really what I'm trying to do is uh, develop a, a bridge, so to speak, between those two disciplines uh, because there is a very real issue that's going on right now. Um, alarmingly, because of many of the terrible headlines that you're reading about, uh, shootings in schools and so on, uh, school administrators are in the process of referring a lot more matters that used to be treated internally in the school uh, to the police. And so what happens as a result of it is that in addition to the disciplinary process that's going on, superintendents hearings, manifestation determinations, etc., there is also a criminal prosecution. And what happens, it kind of feeds on itself because the school feels that since they've had to refer something to the police and it's now considered a quote-unquote police matter, they're going to treat it much more seriously at the school level in terms of the amount of suspension that's going to be taking place. And what's unfortunate is in addition to the student, parents are often shocked when they get a call from the school administrators that their child is suspended or has been involved in something at school that's very serious. Um, they're horrified often if they get a call from the police that their child is being arrested. And in many cases, a growing number of these cases, both are happening at the same time, that the child is getting arrested for something that they are being disciplined for at the school. And you really, what do you do as a parent? That's why I wrote that article that I forwarded to your listeners, uh, which is called Navigating the Perfect Storm, because between the school discipline process, the criminal prosecution, community outrage. Many cases, there's local press involved. Parents are in the middle of this perfect storm. How do you navigate this and protect your child at the same time? Uh, and there's a lot going on, and there's a lot that parents need to know. Now, listeners, you need to jump on this one right away, because you can tell that Rob is a serious, passionate guy. He's been out on the streets. He's seen people at their very worst, and he's really doing what he can to contribute to the community to pull these various organizations together that are actually trying to do some good themselves in their own disparate ways at times. But just let me remind you, Navigating the Perfect Storm is a complimentary PDF download that Rob has written. He's sharing with us at corebrainjournal.com forward slash 050 download. So you just have to go ahead to 050 download, put it in your machine. It's going to come down for you and it's going to work out very, very well. Thanks so much for sharing that, Rob. I appreciate it. You're welcome. So then, next thing is, give us a case, give a little more, if you can, take us right down to the street level with you. Give us an example of where you did the weaving and dodging between the two situations and had something happen that wound up being helpful, and so that people can actually live that with you. Okay, well, I can give you a perfect example that really was a, a pivotal moment that really made me open up my practice into these two directions. Uh, it was shortly after my diagnosis uh, several years back and I got a call from a colleague who was not a criminal defense attorney uh, and he was from another state and he called me up very worried, um, Rob I need your help, my nephew got arrested. 
um, and it's in New York. Okay, no problem. Give me the particulars. I'll go right into action. Um, and uh, before we hung up the phone, he said to me, listen, I got to tell you something else. He's got ADHD. I don't know if you know anything about that. And that was at a time where I was really deeply educating myself about ADHD and trying to understand how I process information and how I responded to uh, situations. And I said, yes, I do know about it. I have ADHD. And so I went to the school and what was going on was um, this kid was uh, 14 years old at the time and he was not a typical, what you would think of as a, a typical behavioral issue for a kid with ADHD. He was an inattentive type, he was a sensitive kid and he was routinely being bullied by the gym teacher in the school. And it had gotten to such a degree that this one day, he's sitting on the front bench in front of the school, hysterical crying, he reaches into his backpack and pulls out a marker and writes on the bench, sometimes I wish this whole place would just blow up. Mm -hmm. And the assistant principal saw him write it. It was two weeks after the Columbine tragedy. Mm -hmm. The school went into red alert. They uh, had him arrested. They suspended him. They closed the school down, brought in bomb-sniffing dogs. Uh, all of the local uh, press had gotten a hold of it. It was a nightmare. I went into the disciplinary hearing. And when I was cross-examining the teachers and the administrators, what uh, and incidentally, this is one of the benefits of doing both of these things, is within five days of an incident, I can cross-examine witnesses, get discovery, which is incredibly useful in the criminal defense case, which I won't have access to for maybe a year down the line. Mm -hmm. So it's important parents need to know that you need to take advantage of that. Jump on time-wise. The time is absolutely, absolutely essential. And so what happened was we were in the meeting and because of my own personal stake in this, I was cross-examining this administrator who witnessed this about this kid's ADHD. She was aware that he took medication at the, uh, the nurse's office every day. I was going through the DSM and his issues with self-esteem, impulsivity, all of these things, uh, and really hit it home. The next day, I got a phone call from the school district's attorney who said to me, look, I don't know what it was, but you really kind of honed in on that ADHD piece. Um, how could we make this go away? And I said to him, it's very simple. He was going to an after-school program and doing extremely well there. And in New York, we have something called the Board of Cooperative Education Services, BOCES, which supplements uh, education services uh, with the school districts. And he was in this BOCES after-school program, and his mother had been trying to get him in this program full-time for about two years, and no one would listen. I said... The mother has been trying to get him into this program. He does very well there. It will get him away from this teacher. The attorney said one word, done. The school backed off their position in the criminal case. We put him in this uh, full-time BOCES program. He does extremely well. I still keep in touch with this family. He's a fireman now. Uh, he does extremely well. And the mother was very thankful to me for the result, but still was very bitter about the fact that she was jumping up and down asking for something for about two years and nobody listened because there was no emergency. And it took something terrible to happen for people to open their eyes and look at the issue. And so from that moment on, I really decided that 
my criminal practice and my understanding of uh, mental illness could really benefit uh, a huge population of people uh, that are kind of getting pulled into the system and it's really because of a disability. And so that's where I started to focus. And that was, uh, I guess, probably the best example I could give you. That's a great example. You know, one of the things is I'm listening to you and thinking about the situation from my own clinical practice and what I see happen so often is the uh, stigma associated with uh, any kind of mental diagnosis anyway. So if a mother said he's got a problem, an emotional problem, well, I mean, the whole thing of sending somebody to get help, just to psychiatric help, is such a uh, such big impasse because nobody wants a label. One of the problems we have in our society is that we are dealing with human beings based on how they look, so they've got a behavioral presentation, and they're in a box, and then it's all over. And now in your situation, it worked very well because you represent quote-unquote, forgive me for saying this, that group, okay? <laughs> so you're a successful guy. You say, look, I'm handling myself okay. This is, this is a workable thing, and this kid's a workable thing. So the person, by talking to a person like you, is starting to have a mind change whether they get it or not because here's a guy that is an example of a person with, quote-unquote, that diagnosis who is a different person than we had assumed that person would be. And you're actually offering an opportunity by just talking to them and, and taking some responsibility for saying, look, this is who I am. This is, this is doable. But- and I will also tell you that, you know, I will look at these kids and I see the frustration in their eyes. And I, I know it because I've lived it. I've been there. I'm one of them. And I tell them, you know, I was what you would, when I was a kid, they didn't call it ADD. They called it BAD. You were either a bad kid or a good kid. And that was it. That's all anybody understood at the time. And not only was I a quote unquote bad kid, I was a loud bad kid. Uh, and that volume really caused a lot of people to kind of look a certain way. And I think that one of the reasons that I I am so public about my ADHD is because of the stimuli, uh, the stigma that you're talking about. The only way that we will ever crack through the stigma is by being open about who we are and trying to educate people to understand that we're not better or worse, we're just different. And I, I will tell you that one of the bigger frustrations I see in my practice is that parents who for very good reason may want to protect their child from these stigmas by keeping it quiet, by not saying anything, are unwillingly perpetuating these stigmas uh, to a certain degree where there's no such thing anymore as a child psychiatrist. Child psychiatrists are calling themselves behavioral pediatricians because of the stigma that's involved. It's so true. And one of the things that um, parents need to know in this situation is that under the law, Okay, if you are disciplined at school for more than 10 days in any given year, okay, and what happens is you are entitled to a superintendent's hearing to determine whether or not factually you committed the offense that you're being charged with. And, you know, it's pretty open and shut usually that the child did what they're accused of. But if you have a 504 plan or an IEP, which means you have been designated as someone with a disability, um, you have an added layer of protection. What happens is the school is required to convene the Committee for Special Education to make a determination after you've been found guilty as to whether or not 
the conduct was a manifestation of your disability. And if it was, you cannot be disciplined for your disability. If The only exception is if a weapon is involved, if drugs are involved, or someone uh, receives a serious physical injury. In those cases, you can be disciplined for 45 school days. But otherwise, you cannot be. And the school is required to sit down and review your IEP or your 504 plan to make sure it's effective, appropriate, and it's being followed. Also, the school has to do a functional behavioral assessment and put into place a behavioral intervention plan. And and this is really important. This is not to say that the disability, the ADHD, the oppositional defiant disorder, whatever it is, is an excuse for that conduct. It's not. However, what we are doing is trying to understand where that behavioral came from so we can put into place something to prevent it from happening again tomorrow. Now, uh, if you have been reluctant to identify your child or you're afraid of labeling your child, you don't have this layer of protection. However, the law says that if you believe that your child does have a disability, they have not been identified, and you uh, are in this disciplinary situation, after the fact, you can request and you should absolutely request an expedited evaluation of your child to kick in those protections. Now. As a practical matter, schools in many cases are reluctant to recognize disabilities because they have to provide services. If your child has been uh, you know, disciplined for doing something terrible, um, they're going to be much less likely because the schools in many cases will see it as a, an excuse for this uh, type of behavior. But you still have to make that request because it can be something to hang your hat on. Uh, to You can move for an immediate impartial hearing if the school disagrees. There there are a number of things that you can do to protect your child, uh, and parents need to know that. And it's all laid out in that PDF that your readers can access. Thank you so much. You know, that is a very interesting summary. I mean, you said one heck of a lot in a short period of time. Fantastic. Now, let me ask you this question. Does that, this, you may or may not know the answer to this one. Is this You were talking New York. No, actually, I'm talking, this is federal law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, uh, as well as Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act are federal legislation. They apply everywhere in the country. New York has some specific extra safeguards that other states don't have, but those general rules that I mentioned to you are universal around the country. See, that's fantastic, because the way you were saying it, with your familiarity and the way it was going... I mean, that's information for me. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it because I didn't really understand that, that uh, what you would call it, the, the wall that can occur or the safety measure, whatever you want to call it, when a person has a diagnosis and what it is. I mean, I've seen that happen with autism. I know you're involved in the uh, ASD community and so on as well, but uh, of course, that's another disability. But that's a more obvious disability. I mean, there's so much chatter about ADHD, so many misunderstandings that occur. What is ADD? You know, my thing, my my pet peeve, is it ADD or is it ADHD? (laughs) I'm like, don't ask me that question unless you want to get me really irritated because (laughs) I'm on a a different planet. I'm looking at, at brain function. I'm not looking at behaviors and appearances. We're we're at a whole different level in this situation. And we get to that level, the thing that you, you likely know is you can prove it biologically. You can do tests and say, here's what it is. And beyond psychological testing, 
here's a biomedical piece of reference that says what this what was troubling this child. Now, that's very doggone interesting. You know, copper, cryptopyrrole, all these other things, which we're interviewing Dr. Walsh on. We've got him uh, and, and, a, and another one. The, the, the biomedical individuals are bringing an additional wrinkle to that particular level of um, insight, really. And I didn't say this person's name. I'll just say Dr. Jennifer Freed. She's going to be on 035. Now, she hasn't been published yet, but just to, just to let you know, she's going to be corebrainjournal.com forward slash 035. And Jennifer Freed is a wonderful human being. She's out in Santa Barbara. And she's right on the same path. It would be good for you to connect with her. And, I will. Thank uh, you. I, I, you know, having interviewed her, I feel like I know her well. You know, you get in these short conversations with people that you have just once in a while, but it can be transformational. Half an hour with a person that you know and care about, who then cares about the same things you care about, bingo. It can be very helpful to a lot of people. Sorry I interrupted. What were you, what were you going to say? I was going to say also another uh, common thing that uh, a mistake that parents make that will make the situation much worse. When that phone call comes in, for instance, from the school, parents will often rush right over to the school and do one of two things. And both of them are probably the worst thing that you can do. The parent will either stand between their child and the administrator and fight that kid's battles, uh, defending that kid, uh, my child would never do this, uh, and so on. The other thing that the parent will do that I think is a huge mistake is discipline their child in front of the administration uh, to show the administration that, you know, this isn't a reflection on me. Uh, you know, neither one of them are effective. No good can come from that. The bottom line is get your child out of the line of fire. Take them by the hand and take them out of the school. If they're suspended, nothing you do there is going to unsuspend them. In many cases, uh, there may be, and this is another issue that we should discuss, in, in many cases, there are police personnel that are either present or on their way. If they're going to be arrested, there's nothing we can do to stop that. Uh, but it's important to make sure that that child does not make any more statements, especially if um, there is a police presence at the school. And I'll give you an example. Um, there's a, based upon all of these uh, school shootings and concerns that are at the school level, there has been uh, a phenomenon in this country, uh, the SRO, the school resource officer, which is in some jurisdictions, depending on the state, an employee of the school district. In other jurisdictions, it's an employee of the police department. In some jurisdictions, the, they uh, are an employee of both agencies, but they are peace officers, they typically carry weapons, and they have powers of arrest. And if a principal says to a student, I want you to write an apology to that teacher for hitting her in the head with your history book, okay? That's one thing, but if they ask you to do that in front of the SRO, that's a written confession. And if there is a criminal case, that should not be happening. Yeah, and that, that child... Let me stop you right there. How if, is it a written confession? Because Tell me, say that again, but so I didn't quite get that point. Sure. If you are a principal and you are asking a student to write an apology for some oh, conduct. If he writes the apology, that's a written Exactly. Text. I got you. Yes, if the police is, are present there, and this is what I call the blurred blue line. At what point does constitutional protection get in the way? If the police are there, that's one thing. Uh, another thing that happens is the schools that don't have SROs in many cases are hiring off-duty police officers as security 
security guards who also have powers of arrest. You're a police officer 24 hours a day. And so these trigger additional constitutional issues that parents aren't aware of. And while school resource officers are a good idea to keep children safe, there is no comprehensive um, sensitivity or uh, crisis intervention training that I'm aware of on a broad scale that would help them learn to de-escalate situations, especially involving kids with special needs. How do you approach this student without making things worse? How do you approach these parents uh, and de-escalate the situation? There's been a lot of work that's been done with the police. Uh, most police uh, precincts have somebody on call at all times uh, that can be asked a question, you know, I'm uh, responding to a situation with someone who we believe is emotionally disturbed, how do we approach this and so on, for our safety, for their safety, but in a school, you have a lot more kids with special needs that are there, and the reason why the police are being called in is because of behavioral issue, and so there needs to be, any of the headlines that you see, a child in Tennessee being handcuffed by his elbows behind his back in middle school, a child in Michigan who's being handcuffed and the school resource officer loses the keys to the handcuffs and the parents come at five o'clock to pick up the kid who's still in handcuffs. All of these kids have special needs. Uh, they were either ADHD, oppositionally defiant, there was some issue and the, the school administration and the resource officers that responded did not know how to address the situation. See, that's a that's a very fertile field to to talk about because you know from years of experience in hospital psychiatry I mean we I, I ran a hospital for many years where we had all kinds of different things going on and uh, as the medical director of the entire hospital we saw things it, this was going on all the time you know and, and and that's what you've been seeing in the streets yourself you know you've been there the example these get, go ahead Sorry. I was just going to say, these are extreme examples, uh, but a more common situation, and my, in my opinion, from my practice, I don't know as a clinician uh, what you would think, but my, my feeling is that the impulse, the inability to control an impulse is probably the behavioral culprit that I see most of the time. Absolutely. And in minor cases, I've been retained on, over the last year, on a slew of cases involving students who have sent inappropriate photographs or texts or social media posts over social media. And if it, what's interesting about this from a criminal perspective is if you are a minor, in almost all, in all states I would say, uh, and you take a picture of yourself, a sexual photograph of yourself, and send it to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or even possess it on your own cell phone, let's say, you are in possession of child pornography, even if you are the child. Uh, there is no defense that you are the person that the statute is designed to protect. And kids don't understand that. And what happens is, because of the potential legal violation, schools will refer those cases to the police. Kids don't understand the consequences. And many of these kids, I have to represent them in explaining that on a college application. And so I've actually taken the step of contacting the principals in all of the school districts in my area to say, 
I need to meet with your students. I need to talk to these kids. I need to make sure they understand the consequences of what they're doing on a regular basis because the problem is getting out of hand. Um, and it's, in my opinion, it's not a situation where these kids don't know the difference from right or wrong because of their disability. In many cases, they know that stealing is wrong, for instance, but the kid next to me had the new iPhone and I had just had to have it. And I couldn't stop myself from taking it. Uh, it's an impulse control issue in many cases. And so so uh, understanding how that interacts with someone, uh, you know, for instance, with ADHD really is very helpful to me in explaining that to parents, explaining that to administrators, educating a judge or a prosecutor about it, um, because I have many of those issues myself. See, it's very exciting to talk to you because just, just talking to you even briefly, I mean, this is a brief conversation, but you are hitting so many important nerves because if you think about the pervasive problems that are occurring. I mean, you, guns are part of it. You're talking about impulsivity. That's a big thing. But you go all the way through the span of a person's lifetime of a kid not knowing what to do and what they can get in trouble with and just having a rich imagination, wouldn't this be fun, without thinking about the consequences and not really having a formal introduction of what the consequences are. I mean, absolutely. So helpful for for you to to think about putting together plan A, plan B, plan C. These are things. Here's what goes on with sexting, or whatever it's called. I, how do you say that word? <laughs> <laughs> I think you got it right. Sexting or something. But anyway, the bottom line is, here's what happens with alcohol. Here's what happens with, you know, doing sending these things back and forth. Here's what happens with guns. Here's what happens with words on the wall. I mean, they're all offenses in a certain way kids do need to know this i mean it's really the do. interface of children and the law i mean that's really what your specialty is children and the law just so happens that a lot of them have impulsivity and adhd and then you're a good proponent of those too but that's really children in the law and impulsivity yeah and i also i mean i represent kids with asperger's are a number of them and um, also another issue that comes up is um, inattentive kids or um, a lot of times girls who are not exhibiting traditional um, symptoms of ADHD in terms of hyperactivity or uh, being disruptive. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the most difficult kid to get services for is the one sitting in the back of the room staring out the window yeah. because they're typically a C student. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not failing and they're not causing a behavioral problem. Uh, those are difficult. And, and two other populations that really concern me are as you know, ADHD, Asperger's, bipolar disorder, learning disabilities don't discriminate across racial or socioeconomic lines. But the real problem is that the access to information and services uh, really does discriminate in this country very harshly. And you have large populations of students in underserved communities whose parents don't have this information or the access to services. And it really is a problem. And another population that is hugely at risk are uh, students that are about to um, age out of the um, foster care system because there are a much higher percentage, I've found, of students with disabilities in foster care and in the adoption community. Um, there is a larger uh, pool of them. I believe a lot of uh, unplanned pregnancies are impulse-related uh, in many ways. And um, 
you have parents, foster parents that are not trained, uh, that don't have uh, access to information in underserved communities. And when these kids age out of the system, they wind up in our penal system. And it is a huge problem. We see that happen to people when they, when they graduate from the military. We're, we're in a military down here, mil military town down here, and, and we see individuals who've been in there for 20 years with the structure of the military causing them to survive. You know, they, they get out of the military, get divorced, get a motorcycle, drive to California, and start smoking weed, you know, and, they, and it's the same thing. You hit a different level of structure. A person who doesn't have good executive function does not deal with change. It doesn't matter whether they're moving forward or moving backward, it just the changes becomes disconcerting and and they then lose it and, and and can't hold it together. There is one other issue that I typically bring up and that is the question of diversion of medication. And what parents need to know is that, uh, especially with stimulant medication, that it's a Schedule II controlled substance, as you know, and students that share medication, the law does not require any money be exchanged for it to be considered the sale. And the sale of a controlled substance is a felony in every single state. And when these kids go away to school, what my experience has been when they go away to college is that they don't uh, like to consider themselves disabled. And they will typically take their medication much less frequently than was the medication plan before they left the home. And they don't have that structure of mom and dad or the school nurse supplying the medication. And at the end of the month, there's a surplus of medication. And if someone pops their head in a room and says, you know, I'm studying for a test or I've got this paper, can I take one of your pills? Uh, and I also understand that there is a, you know, a certain feeling of the medication might be a ticket to popularity. And what these kids don't understand is that it is a felony. They are responsible to safeguard their medication. They are open to administrative sanctions, such as getting expelled or losing their scholarship and uh, being penalized and uh, criminally prosecuted. And I've seen a number of cases, unfortunately, I've gotten calls from many different states where there is a, a drug treatment court program that's been very successful in this country where if you um, qualify and you um, go through treatment for 18 months or 24 months and you succeed, your case will get ultimately dismissed or greatly reduced. And there are judges in this country that will say to students who've diverted their medication that one of the conditions of letting you in this program is that you can't take your ADHD meds anymore because that's what got you into this trouble. Uh -huh. Now, my experience is those kids are the ones who without medication are really going to go off the rails. True. That's so true. And legally, the situation is that it's an opt-in program. So the judges can enforce that as a condition. However, in educating judges and showing them st the statistical data of how these students are improved when they are taking medication successfully, they will ask me, can we enforce them taking medication? My position is in a mental health court situation, they can opt into that program. So you can enforce that as a condition. Normally you wouldn't be able to, but if it's an opt-in program, you may be able to. And that is something that really can uh, benefit the defendant uh, legally as well as medically. Well, I mean, every single one of your points is a knockout point that is so <laughs> relevant for everybody that's listening to our program today. I mean, it's really, really excellent. And 
I, I hope that they're organized as well in that PDF. I mean, every single that sounds like uh, how many pages is that PDF, Rob? Uh, it's about four pages, I think, yeah, four or five good. pages. It's a good outline. But, I mean, this is uh, very, very encouraging to have somebody who really knows their business get into and speak about it so directly as you do. I mean, it's refreshing because you have some answers, you know, as opposed to what do we do next? I'm confused. This is what goes on all the time. And the law is really all about demarcating the boundaries in an effective way that's constructive for the child's life. For his life. Correct. So listen, we got to wind up. And listen, I want to give you an opportunity to please tell us where we can reach you. You have a website and then tell us anything else you would like to tell us about how we can connect with you, please. Sure. Anyone can connect with me at Robert at BargerGains.com, B-A-R-G-E-R-G-A-I-N-E-S.com or on my website, RobertTedisco.com. Um, I, we have a practice that involves uh, criminal work. Uh, we do a lot of disability work in terms of uh, students as well as adults. And um, I, one of the things that we do is a lot of community outreach to schools, to uh, the judiciary. Uh, and we do a lot of education because I think the key here really is, we talked about some systemic changes, but I think the other key is really educating all of the stakeholders uh, in the system, judges, attorneys, probation uh, personnel, etc. And we do a lot of that. We believe in it. Uh, it's important. So Rob, do you do consultations out of state as well? Somebody can call you for a virtual consult? Absolutely. Uh, or use your email and get it. You put your email out. It's great. I'm going to have all these in the show notes, folks. So you know, you may not remember them, but they'll be right there. You can click on them when you go back to the show notes. Rob, thank you so much. Dr. Thank Robert you for Tudisco, we got such a really meaningful talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to reach out to parents and give me the forum. We'll do it again sometime, buddy. Okay. Thanks for listening to Corbrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.